0: No more to sab, go ato or a hat or some ma some Buddha sa. No more to sab, Today being the anniversary, the occasion of remembering the passing away of our teacher uh, Venerable Ajahn I'd be happy to uh, spend some time together this evening reflecting on some of the, the outstanding qualities of him. The... Uh, Five approximately five years that I had the uh, good fortune of living in close proximity with him uh, is something that I will be eternally uh, indebted to him for. Uh, I'm sure he didn't need me around, uh, but I needed him. Something that I am profoundly grateful for um, and I would say that uh, all of us although uh, I'm not sure whether anybody here did you meet Ajahn Chah no. so there isn't anybody else here who actually met Ajahn Chah but that we have this practice place and we have uh, the recorded teachings and the example of those who practice with him to inspire and encourage us is something that we are all uh, indeed also uh, indebted and and very fortunate to have received because without an example without a living example um, it's very difficult it's, um, the we can read the scriptures we can read the commentaries and we can have a very good grasp on the theory of practice. But so long as we ourselves are still uh, struggling with obstructions, difficulties, then it's very, very hard work. But if we have the example of somebody who has practiced and realized the fruits of practice, it becomes a lot easier. And so uh, to have had this Uh, experience of living in his company and seeing what it's like to be with somebody who is experiencing the fruits of of practicing the Dhamma, not just having a good grasp on the theory, but somebody who's really surrendered themselves to the practice and realized the benefits for themselves is a a, a tremendously precious and and wonderful thing. Now, uh, probably many of you have read and, and heard talks uh, by other monks who have lived with Ajahn Chah and um, plenty has been said about him and everybody has their own take on his uh, characteristics, what it was like, what he was like. And this evening I was spending time just before Puja uh, considering what what really stands out in my experience of living with him. Uh, yes, he had studied the scriptures and and yes, he knew what he was talking about and he could sit on the dumber seat and give great talks. He could also give profoundly boring talks, I can assure you. He could talk for hours and hours and he had great equanimity. He didn't seem to be the slightest bit interested in entertaining us. If he thought it was good for us to to have some encouragement to practice equanimity and patience, then he would give us all the reasons for that. Um, but uh, when I cast my mind back and I, again, I think of the experience of being with him, one of the things that really... Really well. There's three things actually. I've settled on three things that really stand out, and and top of the list is just how uh, how wonderfully kind he was. That he's known for being a very wise being, and he clearly was a very wise being. Uh, uh, people from all over the country, all over the world, and including the king of Thailand, would come and pay their respects. Uh, businessmen the aristocracy, uh, the local farmers would come to be in his company because of his profound wisdom, and he was known for that. But I think sometimes we maybe we emphasize that a little bit too much, yeah. because if we imitate those beings that we think are realised and we feel are worth imitating, what are the qualities we're going to focus on? And so when I think of my time with him, this is the, one of the qualities that really stands out, There's this extraordinary experience of his kindness, just being in his company, and, and the particular incidents that I can remember, but also just the general atmosphere of how considerate and and kind he was and I can remember very vividly a particular incident of when I had gotten a a seriously bad infection in my ankle I've been into the local town a little village in those days called Warin Chamra and uh, it's uh, well developed these days but in those days it was really the wild west and and, uh, very rough and ready and I had been into town for some reason I forget what it was but walking along the street and I'd slipped off the pavement into the, the, the drain which was in fact an open sewer and just a little graze on my my ankle didn't think it was very much but I ended up I think walking most of the way back to the monastery and within a few days I had this really massive uh, weeping ugly uh, infection that developed into a horrible ulcer and lasted for a very long time and I I even had trouble walking, and and I, I can remember one day when Ajahn Chah, as he would, would come over to visit and see how the Western monks were doing and give us a little encouragement. And he was asking Ajahn Sumato, you know, everybody okay? And he said, Oh, yeah, people are okay, but that uh, that one that one New Zealand monkey seems to have picked up some pretty ugly infection, and 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 he called me forward. I can still remember him calling me forward and. And looking down at my foot, asking me to pull my foot up so I could see it. And, and, uh, and just the, the extraordinary quality of total attention. And just this, what it's like to receive somebody's total attention. What a gift that is. What a beautiful thing that is. He wasn't feeling sorry for me. I forget what he actually said, but it wasn't there, there, you poor thing. It wasn't like that. It was it was the quality of attention which is really the characteristic of loving kindness. Yeah. When the heart is unobstructed with fear, with greed, with ill will, with resentment, when the heart is unobstructed that is the characteristic, loving kindness. We call it loving kindness but what is it actually? It's the heart that's not Obscured, uh, and to be on the receiving end of Ajahn Chah's unobstructed attention and the the warmth, the the friendship, the caring was a a beautiful gift, and, and it wasn't the only occasion. I, uh, other occasions when I'd go and see him. I particular one. I remember one particular occasion when I was absolutely racked with doubt. Uh, wasn't rare in those days so just the, the mind was lost in confusion and and doubt and and worry and anxiety and I was losing sleep and I didn't know what to do and and another young monk there who who whose uh, name was Warapunyo who some of you might have read some of his translations and books that he's written Paul Brighter and he was very fluent in the local dialect, not just in speaking Thai, but also in the local Isan dialect. And, and he was going to go over to see Ajahn Chah. Actually, he was going to go over and ask to disrobe, which um, I don't think Ajahn Chah was very kind to him. But he was very kind to me. He was very kind to me. And and Warapanyo was translating for me and expressing how this, uh, this skinny, scorny, young monk was caught up in all this worry and anxiety and doubt and, and again, I still remember very vividly just the gaze of Ajahn Chah. And, and what he said was, in what he said was, which translates as, oh, yeah, I've been there. Said, I've been there. And that... Empathy—that, where you, where, no judgment, where somebody, you feel somebody really sees you, and there's no judgment. Oh, again, once again, what a, what a wonderful gift that is, and what a beautiful thing that is, and and truly something worth emulating. You know, I think the meditation traditions of Buddhism in all the countries are. I think, uh, are well known for expressions of the spiritual warrior and certainly the way that we Westerners have picked it up in, in our experience in going to Thailand and becoming familiar with what's known as the Kru Barajan tradition, and and you hear these Western monks talking about these great austerities that the monks went through and their daring battles with Mara and... Yeah, certainly. That's that's uh that's good to know about and and the energy of the spiritual warrior is absolutely essential. But uh if that's all we've got, is the energy of the spiritual warrior, well, I can tell you over the years that I've been living as a monk, which is getting on for 40 now, I've seen a lot of uh, very wounded seriously wounded spiritual warriors. Who went into battle, not properly prepared? So, one of the great gifts of a of a wonderful teacher like Ajahn Chah is they set an example for us, and and so this is an example that uh, I think is is something that well, when you, even when you read the teachings, you can still hear it coming through the translated teachings: the the care, the kindness, the concern. Of the teacher for his disciples, all he wants to do is help, and and this is something that, if we, as we do, I'm sure all aspire to liberation and freedom from suffering. We want to emulate our teachers. I think this is a this is a one of the profound qualities that that we're wise to emulate. Yes, the daring spirit. Yes, the energy of the warrior but also the limitless kindness. Even if we don't necessarily, as we probably almost surely don't, feel the same quality of unobstructed kindness that he experienced, we can still act as if, or as they say in AA, fake it till you make it. It's not the real thing, but if in our hearts we generate the aspiration and and emulate our teachers by practising kindness, not pretending to be kind, but where there's an opportunity to let go of old habits of resentment old habits of contracting out of fear, not to just default to that willful spiritual warrior energy of I'm going to overcome this and I'm going to break through and, and as, as important as these things are, and yes, we can read in the scriptures the Buddha talking about my bones are going to break and my blood is going to dry up, and, and yes, certainly, but let's not forget that warm-heartedness of our teachers and the the willingness to forgive. The willingness to forgive those who've harmed us. uh, The willingness to forgive ourselves. And that, uh, that also connects with another quality which for me really stands out when I reflect on my time with Ajahn Chah and that is... Uh, the quality of agility. Now, I don't know what the Pali word for that is or even what the Thai word for that is, but I do know what that looks like when you see it in somebody. Not all monks and nuns, not all spiritual teachers manifest the kind of agility that means you can adjust according to time and place. The conditions of the world, the outer world and the inner world are always changing. The conditions that we find ourselves in, that we experience in, in daily life and in formal practice are always changing. And if we approach spiritual practice with a very materialistic attitude, which is inevitable in the beginning, but if we don't uh, let go of that, if we don't move on past that, then we're going to hold to our spiritual ideals and become rigid. But where there's you know, rigidity, it's like rigor mortis. It's what you know. It's what happens when you're dead. And sadly, this is a risk in in the spiritual life. You know? We can. We can start off with tremendous enthusiasm and tremendous energy and and really throw ourselves into practice with zeal and and commitment and and hope, but if we don't have this flexibility, if we don't have this agility, if we hold fast to our ideals and our ideas, our opinions, then there's a risk that will break. Mm. So Ajahn Chah was anything but rigid, anything but fixated on views and opinions. In fact, it's something that he spoke about, not really. One of the things that frightens him about his disciples and and one of the things he has to deal with constantly is their attachment to views and opinions, you know, particularly Westerners, uh, that because of the kind of education we've had, we just we just love our ideas. We love our opinions. And they're like our credentials, and we fight over them. Uh, we, we love fighting over them. And if somebody comes up with one opinion and you, we just counter it with another opinion, because often because we're addicted to contentiousness. And certainly this is something that uh, Ajahn Chah uh, was way beyond and to have that was a a great gift to see somebody who is so consistently agile, able to adapt, able to adjust whatever was happening Uh, again, talking about this expression of total attention that when people would come to see Ajahn Chah whether it's the the local villagers with their problems, I remember there was one night somebody, a group of villagers brought this, this young girl who'd come who she was in a seriously disturbed mental state and they were convinced that she was possessed by a demon and And I don't know whether she was possessed or whether she was deranged or what her, her situation was, but certainly she was very uh, distressed. And I remember the amount of time that Ajahn Chah spent with her and with the villagers that evening, giving his total loving, caring attention. and And that then you see him in another situation where some local businessman is coming to him and, and wants to be treated very importantly and Ajahn and Chah could adjust according to that situation or, or if he has to go to Bangkok and, and he's in a hospital ward where I saw him, I remember visiting him when he was sick in hospital and, and out of his comfort zone But he was still very comfortable, no problem at all, sitting cross-legged on his hospital bed there, receiving doctors and nurses who were coming in to see him. No problem. Or when he came to the West, when he jumped on a plane and somebody told him, well, you can't eat betel nut in the West, Longpore, you've got to give up your betel nut. And um, I suspect he was addicted to betel nut, it's a very addictive substance, and but, uh, well, you don't chew beetle nut in the West, and quite rightly you don't. I, and if you've seen it, it's like blood dribbling down somebody's chin. And it's really grotesque. And then they kind of hoit, spit it into a spittoon. And I, don't, you know, I can't imagine he would spit on the ground, um, certainly not in any populated area. And uh, it looks really grotesque. And if you're not used to it, <laughs> it's definitely very off-putting. And so he took the advice of... Uh, uh, the westerns, they said, Lomboa, you can't shoot betel nut in the west, so at the airport he gave away his betel nut. No problem. He probably had a few headaches because that's a, an addictive substance, but he adjusted. And, and when he was in the west here, he was, I remember there was one situation that um, I didn't see it myself, but I heard about where he went to visit the parents of, of one of our monks. And, and, uh, and as you could, uh, I'm sure, understand, not all parents are, uh, delighted with their son living off in some foreign country with belonging to some religious cult or other. And and so uh, when Ajahn Chah came to visit the parents of one of the monks and and the father opened the door and Ajahn Chah produces this great big beaming smile and sticks his hand out and shakes his hand and, <laughs> and greets him. Now, this is not something that you would see any senior monk of Ajahn Shah standing do in Thailand but he was in tune one of the characteristics of somebody whose heart is free from obstruction is they're in tune, they're able to adjust, they have agility and I, I mentioned it this evening because not only does it stand out in my mind but I think it's it's a spiritual quality that is worth emulating, it's worth registering you know, agility, don't let rigor mortis kick in you know, don't be holding too tightly to spiritual techniques, spiritual opinions as again probably many of you have heard the Ajahn Chah sharing the example of one of his teachers, I think it was Ajahn Tongrat who he would tell his students that when the kilesas come towards you, if they if they come high, you've got to be able to duck under them. If they come low, you've got to be able to jump over them. A uh, graphic way of, of pointing out the need for agility and contrasting the risk we have with our materialistic attitudes to become rigid, to hold on to. Just because we start out with something that seems to work, then we tend to want to cling to it. But that's not the way. Yeah, the Mara is very devious. Or you could say the deluded tendencies of our mind are are very devious. We will pick up some spiritual discipline and it'll be working for a while, but then the deluded ego will learn how to imitate it and it won't be working anymore because we're not doing the real thing anymore. Hmm. So agility, I would suggest, is a... a, um, something really worth thinking about and, and personally something that I'm uh, immensely grateful to having had that uh, manifest in, in the life of Ajahn Chah. So as I started off by saying, you know, the theory of practice is one thing, but the practice of practice, it's completely different. Yeah. They're connected, but it's completely different. You know, just the same as, as a photograph of Thailand is completely different from the experience. You can look at all these high-resolution, gorgeous photographs of the northeast of Thailand and, and the lovely cooties and the lovely monks and, and, and the lovely sunshine and compare it to Northumberland. Grey, cold stone walls, no sunshine and grumpy, pale-faced, pasty-looking monks. Mm. Oh, it must be so wonderful to be in Thailand. Well, the photograph looks like that, but I can tell you (laughs) those photographs don't show you the mosquitoes or the ants. The ants, these things are endlessly biting you. Walking to Evening puja to get all devotional to go and be all spiritual and, and you stand in a line of these stinging ants that are just within seconds, they're really already racing up your legs and stinging you and you're stomping your feet and killing dozens of these things and so much for being devotional and spiritual, you're just full of irritation and rage. And then the endlessly hot, miserable months of the summer, you're just sweating all day and all night. You know, your cootie, that gorgeous cootie's got a tin roof. It's just like living in a sauna. And I'm not making this up. This is true. This is absolutely true. And the food that looks so lovely, goodness knows what chemicals they've sprayed on it. And and the noise from the village because they're, they're drunk and partying all night, week after week. And again, I'm not making this up. No disrespect intended to my dear Thai friends, but this is the difference between a photograph that you see in a nice glossy book and the reality. And so it is with the theory, which is the photograph, and the actuality of practice. One of the examples Sajan Shah used to give was he said it's like, in this he talked about this, the theory and practice of practice, he said it's like with medicine. You know, he said you, you wouldn't want to have a doctor who'd never studied medicine practice on you well actually the example he gave was a herbal uh, doctor somebody who had never studied anything doesn't know anything but if all the herbal doctor has done is studied and hasn't practiced well that's not it either so he wanted us to understand that the study of practice and the practice of the practice they're connected they inform each other but they're not the same and So not to mistake them, not to mistake that dossie photograph from the northeast of Thailand for the real thing. Don't believe it. When you go to the northeast of Thailand, you'll have culture shock. Now hopefully you'll get over it and then you'll come to realize all the wonderful benefits and advantages of being there. But it's not the same thing as the photograph. And so we need to be prepared for that. You know, in the beginning of practice, we can be inspired and really get off on listening to talks and reading books and thinking we know something. But when we're practicing the practice, we need to let go of the, all the ideas we have about practice. And that's something else altogether. So there's uh, certainly uh, in, in Ajahn Chah's teaching and in his example, this is something that he... He pointed out and speaking about it, and it was a, a talk he gave one year when there was a whole lot of young monks who'd come to uh, live at his monastery during the wasa, during the rains retreat, and a lot of university students, and they were having Vinaya lessons, uh, instruction on the Book of Discipline. And one of the uh, monks there had been appointed as the Vinaya master, and instead of giving lessons and sitting there and talking over the, the the Vinaya training with the young monks, what this this teacher monk had done was he'd prepare tapes in his Kuti, he'd sit there and he'd prepare recordings about the Vinaya and and then the monks would all sit there and listen to these recordings and and one day Ajahn Chah went over there and gave a very inspiring we've still got a recording of the talk it's very useful, uh, inspiring very wise and uh, skillful uh, encouragement with regards to the discipline and one of the things he points out is he says you can listen to these tapes or you can study the books and you can think you understand the discipline but believe me you don't until you've lived it for many years that's why we have in the monastic training we have this five-year Navaka training, the first years of being in training or the Navaka years. For those five years, that's the opportunity to study, to read, to remember, to practice, to cultivate, and hopefully to internalize the spirit behind the form of the rules. We can know the form of the rules. We can maybe recite all the rules, but that doesn't mean to say we know the rules. To know the rules, we have to live by the rules for a good number of years, and then hopefully we've internalized the, the spirit, the meaning, the essence of the rules. And So the st- study of practice or the theory of practice and the practice of practice are different things, and we need to know both. They inform each other, but they're very different. And that process of transforming our initial understanding into something that's more grounded in the body and lived through our daily life is something that takes uh, extraordinary patience. And there's, a, there's another uh, quote from Ajahn Chah that he's well known for and, and to hear him say it and, and the, uh, the understanding that behind him saying it is a great gift and and that's the expression he has which was Tungti Sutkomi Kwam O kwam o is patient endurance. Tungti kwam So in the end all we've got is patient endurance. Yeah. Now that that's not probably the way we think. Well, almost certainly it's not the way we think, because we want to see progress, we want to see results, we want insights, we want to know that we're developing, and fair enough, in the beginning, we do need some evidence, some encouragements, uh, the the effort that we're making, and the sitting still of of a meditation, and uh, restraining our actions of body and speech to keep the precepts, and We want to see some benefit from this, this affirmation, this confirmation that the path of practice is worth the effort, yes, in the beginning. But as we practice, more and more, we realize that, well, we've got to get to the point where we do realize that the karmic momentum of our past heedlessness, actually, where we've acted out of unawareness yeah. through when we were uninformed, uneducated with matters of the heart, yeah. before we developed an understanding of Dhamma mm. in this life, in previous lives, and we, we built up a momentum of avoidance of reality. Yeah. It's like an ocean liner. You know, you decides you're going to stop an ocean liner. You can't stop an ocean liner. You can slow down an ocean liner. Yeah. And so it is with the momentum of ignorance and conceit, which are the result of our tendencies to avoid reality. Yeah. We have these tendencies to avoid reality, we develop habits of greed, aversion and delusion and then they pollute and distort consciousness and so we've got the self-perpetuating cycle of, of building up indulging in delusion and it's got very painful consequences which eventually all of us get tired of and decide we're going to do something about it, which is what we're doing here. But even though we've decided with heart and mind and body and speech to do something about it, it doesn't mean to say that the consequences of our past heedlessness are going to immediately cease. You know, we, can, we can have some really life-changing experiences of opening and clarity and understanding and that uh, can be deeply unsettling and, and inspiring and encouraging and energizing but that doesn't mean to say that it's all over and it's a big mistake in fact to think that it's all over because the habits the old momentum can catch up with us we can get used to our new insights maybe our previous amazing understanding just becomes just run of the mill and then we've still got our old habits to deal with. All the insights may be profound, but that's while you're sitting or on your own. And when you get up from your cushion and you start talking to people and, and doing the dishes and painting the window frames and fixing the computer and whatever else we're doing, the old habits of me kick in. And that's where infinite patient endurance is called for. Even though we may have a good level of understanding, even if we've got insight, in the end, what we work with is patient endurance. Now, again, with talking about our teacher this evening, as in Shah, his example of the extraordinary patience is a great gift. Yeah. As probably those of you that have been around the monastery for a while have seen that there's quite a big turnover. I mean, people come and go through these places and not, not just our monasteries here in the west but also in Thailand. And year in, year out you get people coming and joining the monastery, visiting the monastery, staying in the monastery for a period of time, and then going again. And then there's a new intake, a new lot come. And for those who stay there, for the senior monks, they've got to tell the new ones over and over again. Same old thing, over and over again. Carry a bowl like this. Uh, After the meal, this is how we behave. And uh, when we come into the Dhamma Hall, this is how we behave. And while uh, speaking personally, I I know I sometimes reach what I feel like is my limit. And I think, oh, how many times do I have to tell these people the thing over and over again? Turn the lights off. Close the windows. Don't waste the offerings that the lay people have given. And well, that it's good to remember the example of somebody like Ajahn Chah. He never reached, at least as far as I could see, the limit. Uh, because when the heart is not obstructed with me and my way, then it manifests as patience. It just understands. It just understands. This is the way it is. So long as we're still lost in the momentum of me and my way, well, it's very tedious. So I don't want to do it. I can't be bothered telling these people, wear proper footwear when you're using the axe. You know. No, you can't use a chainsaw just because you want to. You've got to have a license to use the chainsaw. Wash the paintbrushes after you've used them. Clean the shovel before you put it away. Now, these outer expressions of patient endurance, of course, if we train ourselves in them, well, then the benefit is that the utter tediousness of the monkey mind becomes workable. Yeah. I'm sure we all know what the monkey mind feels like. Aimlessly running off after our fantasies and running away from things that we don't like and dreaming of things that we like and that's what the monkey mind does. Mm. And if we don't have patient endurance, well then it's a real ordeal. Mm. So cultivating these wonderful qualities so beautifully exemplified in the life of Ajahn Chah and all the great teachers are enhanced by patient endurance. You, if you're cultivating kindness, you you're bound to fail. You think kindness is a wonderful quality. You can, you can chant the discourse on loving kindness, the Karaniya Metta Sutta, Over and over again. Maybe you make a practice of it. You can chant it 108 times every day. You know, great discipline. But you're probably still going to get angry. What do you do then? We're patient, and we begin again. Patient endurance is what we cultivate when we're not having a good time. Yeah. There's a lot of other aspects of the training that we become refined and honed down when we're feeling good. Uh, When we're not feeling good, there's a risk that we can jump to the conclusion that we're failing. It's very easy to do that. For instance, if we feel fear, something comes up from goodness knows where, goodness knows where. And we just, night after night, we've got fear to deal with. Or every time you go out on your walking meditation track, you start feeling anxious. Maybe you don't even know why. Sometimes it appears totally rational. Obviously there are causes for it, but we don't necessarily see the causes. Maybe we've been avoiding them for so long that they're difficult to see. Yeah. We're not having a good time. Well, it's very easy to jump to the conclusion because we're not having a good time that we're failing. Well, that's not necessarily the case. We can always succeed in practice by deciding to be patient. You know, not bitter endurance, not like, well, I'll grit my teeth and bear this and eventually I'll get over it. No, that's not patient endurance. Patient endurance is a willingness to bear with that which is unbearable. Mm-hmm. And similarly with agility, you know, to the flexibility, the right kind of flexibility. I'm not talking about the flexibility or the agility that's the kind of whatever attitude. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. But we have looked at our tendencies to cling often enough, our pursuit of some sort of synthetic security we've got a goodie of enough perspective on that to recognise when we're holding on to something that maybe used to work for us but now it's time to let go and to feel insecure I don't know actually I used to feel like I knew what I was doing I used to have this clarity and now I don't know anymore yeah, well that's what we can know. If we're agile, we can, we're can. we willing to let go of the perception of me progressing and really getting somewhere, and stop and just stand there. You know, sometimes that's what's called for. We can stop making progress. You know, this crazy idea, I think I referred to it in a talk recently that we have in our society, the economic theory of perpetual growth is absolutely insane, ridiculous you know, there can't be perpetual growth yeah. but it can. The, the concept is around and it can affect us and we can carry this materialistic attitude into our spiritual practice well if there's agility and what's called for is stop trying to make progress but simply be with this, be with this uncomfortable feeling of insecurity. I really want to know. Well, with patience and agility, maybe what we get to see is that that's just what we need to be with. Wanting to be sure. That was what drove me into hellish states of doubt partly it was this addiction to wanting to be sure fortunately Ajahn Shah, Ajahn Shah, wasn't caught in that addiction and actually on that occasion when I went to see him I referred to before and, and he said oh I've been there, he said I've been there he also went on to say, he said you know when something is unsure and you want to make it sure guess what? you're going to suffer. If something is uncertain and you try to make it certain, you're creating a problem. But if we're caught up in the momentum of always trying to be certain, caught up in our addiction of trying to be sure, that's what we do. Lack of agility. Uh, Unfortunate. But hopefully, eventually, we get tired of the suffering and we drop it and we surrender and we say, right, it's like this. It's uncomfortable, but I've got the willingness, the patience to bear with the unbearable feeling of wanting to be sure. Hmm. So, again, the example of somebody like uh, Ajahn Shah and also uh, in my first year I had the uh, good fortune of living with, living with Ajahn Tate, another a very wise, great teacher, Uh, lived in Thailand at the same time as Ajahn Chah. This example of extraordinary kindness that is the expression of undivided attention. The heart is not divided, the heart is not obscured, the heart is not distorted with greed, aversion delusion as it is for us. And so that experience of receiving that kindness, of witnessing that agility and the The third quality that, reflecting on it earlier this evening, came to my mind and really stands out, still stands out, is that although these great beings and talking this evening about Ajahn Chah, although Ajahn Chah was recognised as a great master, Ajahn Chah was a master, a meditation master. You see it written about in the books, you hear people talking about the meditation master Ajahn Chah, the experience of living with Ajahn Chah was uh, what you saw in Ajahn Chah's company was not a master but a servant. Ajahn Chah was a servant of the Triple Gem. Ajahn Chah was a servant of the Dhamma. Ajahn Chah was a servant of the Buddha, a servant of the Sangha. And it was, a, it was a wonderful example to witness. And You could see it in the way that he would bow. When Ajahn Chah went to bow. It wasn't a perfunctory bop, 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 kind of get this out of the way and get on with the good stuff. You know, get up with, get on with sitting on my high seat and being impressive. <laughs> it, wasn't, it certainly wasn't like that. When Ajahn Chah stopped and bowed, Ajahn Chah stopped and bowed. And there was a surrendering, and a truly beautiful thing to see. Uh, I remember similarly when I was visiting with Ajahn Mahabur who had a, a, a reputation for being a real spiritual wild man. And, and uh, I remember when he would come into the, the meditation hall in the morning and he would go straight to the main shrine and stop and bow. And this is also something that we can, I think, skillfully, wisely emulate from our teachers. We can cultivate... You know, uh, yeah. Instead of just do this and get it out of the way, when we bow, stop. and Remember what we chant every morning. I am a servant of the Buddha. The Buddha is my lord and guide. The Buddha is sorrow's destroyer who bestows blessings on me. I am a servant of the Dhamma. That contrasts powerfully with the condition that perhaps we ourselves and certainly much of the world is afflicted by, the global affliction. Uh, a few centuries ago, the, uh, the plague was rampant across this part of the planet and, and tens of thousands of people died because of this disease Called the plague. Well, the disease that's rampant now is narcissism, a global pandemic of it's all about me. And cultivating this aspiration, cultivating the disposition of a servant of the triple gem is the medicine for this malady, as the medicine for this disorder. And having the opportunity to witness the life of somebody like Ajahn Chah uh, is indeed a a great gift and a great, great inspiration. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.